Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. My name is Dr. Vera Tarman, and I am your host today speaking with nutritionist Brenda Wollenberg. Brenda is a specialist in designing personalized dietary stress management and supplement plans for the individual's client's unique genetically influenced needs. Could our genetics be the the reason why particular food sensitivities amongst us differ? Why does a one-size-fits-all diet not work for everyone? In fact, why does a plan that can cause health problems for some be actually the perfect diet for another person? Brenda Wollenberg is not only a nutritionist, but with her decades of experience both as both a co-pastor and social worker, she works as a body-mind-spiritual wellness coach that helps us understand how our genetics influence our overall wellness. She demonstrates how, by discovering our unique metabolic type and ideal meal plan, we can mitigate the potentially challenging outcomes of our vulnerable genes. Brenda is author of Overweight Kids in a Toothpick World and Eat, Sleep, Move for Your Genetic Body Type. She has had hard articles in Canadian Living, McLean's, and Family Fun. And she's created an imbalance wellness program for children's teens and adults. Brenda's decades of experience, ranging from a number of physical, emotional, and spiritual modalities, have enabled her to design a methodology her own methodology that harnesses the power of both genetics and epigenetics, that's the environment, to optimal good health. And we at Food Junkies are especially interested in how she uses DNA data, that type of data that's found on uh, sites such as 23andMe, to determine what types of foods are best for us to eat or avoid in order to achieve good metabolic health, as well as, of course, food serenity. Before we start, I want to note that this is part one of our time with Brenda. Part two will actually be an illustration of how she uses the DNA information, in this case taken from the three of us at Food Junkies, that's Chrissy, Molly, and me, and shows how she builds this individual plan for individuals using us as examples. So after all of that, hello, Brenda. Hi, Vera. Really good to be here with you today. I'm looking forward to this. Okay, thank you. So we always start with the personal and sort of find out how you got where you are, and then we'll talk about some of your theory. So I understand just from what I've read to you that you're a social worker, a pastor, and a nutritionist. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey, how you how, how you got where you got to and how you got to where you are now? Sure, absolutely. And I would say like many across the vast fields of helping professions, that I probably came to social work initially as much of my desire to be supportive of others' healing and growth journey, as well as I was secretly hoping I could do some healing and growing of my own. So, you know, raised by two parents who loved and deeply cared for their six kids and had significant challenging histories of their own. So we had some, you know, childhood events early and then in university, when I began studying topics like psychology and biology, I thought social work seems like a really natural option 
for both better understanding my own family of origin dynamics and their impact on me and my siblings, as well as getting trained in helping others learn how to process their experiences in a way that allowed them to heal and their true self could kind of be revealed in that. So that's social work. Pastoring, I'm going to say it came out through the back door. Okay. So my dad was a pastor and he had that role in an era that sometimes fostered like appearance over an adherence to certain rules over truth. So it was a challenging time. He did well. He served people well. He was much loved and respected, but it took a toll on him and our family. So after he and my mom got divorced, I was like, that's it. I am never marrying a pastor, okay? Then darn it, I fell in love with one. Uh, so what can you do? So we ended up in a denomination that was formed at the tail end of the Jesus movement. So more on hippie lifestyle later, okay? Yeah, uh, and very it, interesting. And it, wow. Yeah. Yeah, so it was, and there's a movie out right now about it. It's pretty fascinating. But anyways, it was the belief that women were valued. They had important roles to play in ministry. So we ended up co-pastoring together, kind of job sharing for the 20 years that we were part of that. And then nutrition was kind of like, okay, so I've got this experience in education, you know, in mental and emotional health. I've got this experience in growing kind of richer spiritual life and figuring that out. I thought, what the heck, let's just go get the trifecta of body, mind, spirit, wellness, and throw in some physical health training. And so when all of our kids went back to school, I went back and became a nutritionist. So that's how it all happened. Wow, that's really interesting. And somewhere in there, you have your own story about weight, because you do focus a fair amount on weight. So what happened there? So with me, I'll jump ahead. Like I, it was a super sick kid and super sick social worker. So rheumatic fever as a kid, you know, on antibiotics, kind of like several you know, years straight, which was the prescribed recommendation at that time. And a lot of stress that I handled with sugar, as you're well familiar with that kind of thing. So I ended up in maintaining weight reasonably well during adolescence and that kind of thing because I was very physically active. Despite the rheumatic fever and the fatigue and immune system functioning, I still, you know, did lots of things. But I hit second year university, lived on campus, and discovered ice cream and cookies were your best friend in, you know, stress management times. So despite playing, you know, college volleyball, ended up actually packing on more weight there than I ever did full-term pregnant. So that was my journey with that that then fluctuated for the next probably five or six years until I actually figured out what was the root causes of it and predominantly being a sugar one. So do you want me to go into that story now or do you want me to wait a bit on that? Uh, well, so, so your understanding about the dynamics of sugar? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So mine came about, again, kind of through the root awakening where when we were, uh, when I was in social work and Mark was pastoring separately, I was just like super tired, like on the couch, you know, every night after work and fueling in a really high stressful, but really job that I loved working with, you know, uh, adolescents that were falling through the cracks of social services and education and mental health and the attorney general department it was actually a, a closed unit that we were working in. I was a social worker for it. And just like fueling regularly on the honor box that was in the staff room. So I don't know if you ever had one of those that's loaded full of cookies and packed snack goods. And that would keep me going in mid-afternoon slump. I would be in there, siren call of that over. I feel like this is probably exaggerating, but I probably owed half my paycheck 
to that honor box each each time that the paycheck came due. So I, unbeknownst to me, had fallen into this cycle of the cortisol, the glucose, the blood sugar level drops, the rise again, and that just was what was fueled my first few years in social work. It came to an end when someone that was in the youth group, the young adult group that my husband was was overseeing, came to me. She'd become a friend, and she said, I, I'm really concerned about you. And I'm like, what's the big deal? She's like, oh, like you're, you're tired all the time. You're sick all the time. She said, and I, I actually feel like you're, like, used to be smarter. Thanks <laughs> a lot, you know? Anyway, she said, I have the solution for you. You need to see my boyfriend. And I was like, what is this? And anyways, he was a master herbalist at the time, was a super science-based geek. Like, he was a member of Mensa, and he was doing vitamin formulations for some of the major manufacturing companies in Canada and had a wellness coaching thing. I went to him very reluctantly because I was not interested in complimentary practices, thought they were really woo-woo and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Food couldn't be playing a role in how sick I was feeling, et cetera. And he basically just nailed it in the first session with him and individualized. Like, I know you want to know later on about, you know, how did you get into this personalized thought? You know, just ask me questions. All my symptoms, what was I doing? What was I eating? How was I exercising? What, what was I doing for mindfulness and all this kind of stuff? And I'm like, oh, my goodness. And, you know, he sent me out of there with this very strict regimen, two weeks, of course, not a scrap of sugar in there. And I'm a quarter Irish. I thought I can do anything for two weeks. And, you know, don't go back and eat. And I'm a bars and peak friends, basically. And at the, I remember at the end of the two weeks, I said to Mark, I don't care what you do for the rest of your life. I am eating like this. So that was the start of dealing with all of these issues and really personalizing things, including food as a huge part of that. Because you saw after two weeks how much better you felt? Is that, oh, is, yeah. oh, yes. Yeah. First week, as you're probably well aware, I felt horrible. It just like you got, you're detoxing all this stuff and your sugar cravings through the roof and no energy and all that kind of thing. But he also really supported me with supplements and diet and other types of things. So literally it was a very fast transition to, oh my goodness, I have a brain back. The girl was right. I used to be smarter. <laughs> so. Yeah. So is that is there more to say about that? I mean, that was your entry into the concept of a personalized approach. Did you want to say more about that before we get into actually the theory of what you're doing? I think that that's probably good for now because we'll talk a little bit about vegetarianism and keto and paleo later on. But that was totally my eye-opening, oh, my goodness, like you need to not just do things the same as everybody else around you is doing. Just because everyone else might be able to eat sugar every day and not have an impact does not mean that you can do that. So. Okay. So your unique thing that you offer is this understanding of how to use genetics and epi, epi, epigenetics. So, so can you tell us a little bit about your eat, sleep, move for your genetic body type approach, which allows you to design a personalized care of, based on genetic body type. So elaborate a little bit on that, please. Sure. So that personalized approach has been kind of the backbone of my wellness coaching practice for the past 20 years. And that was born initially out of concern for clients. Like they were experiencing what I did decades ago and they've been misinformed. They were confused. They were trying to hack their way through this nutrition wellness jungle and, and not without really a guide map, like just 
going in circles. Yeah, doing because, the, because it's, so true that, it's so true that, that you go into that jungle and you hear one thing, then you hear another thing, and what do you do? So you're essentially helping the person figure out what they should do. Yeah, I mean, they had tried every one-size dietary plan that their cousin did and their co-worker did. And so this personalized approach that this eat, sleep, move that you mentioned was, yes, focused on non-one-size dietary plans, but the other two components of it were that many times I found that they were trying to change their behavior without addressing the thinking behind the behavior. So there wasn't enough emotional work being done. They read a book or they went to some plan or something, and they never looked at stopping to see what were the reasons why they were behaving the way they were. And then the third part of it was is that no one that came to see me was actually treating their whole self. They were either looking at themselves physically, they'd done this diet, or they were doing the latest exercise regimen, that kind of a thing, or they were doing mental health work, really helpful mental health work, but, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, or they were doing some sort of EMDR, whatever, or they were doing spiritual work, and they were looking at contemplative stuff, but they were addressing themselves in isolation, and I just thought, that's not working. Like, we are not isolated beings. We really need to address this a little bit differently. So, yeah, that's the backbones of that eat, sleep, move. It's personalized, mind-body-connected, and whole-you-considered. Okay, but somewhere in there, you, it, it, there's something to do with the genetic body type. So how did you f- stumble upon that whole concept? Because that's really the essence of what you're doing. Yeah, so about six years ago, I, in, in my practice, I have a partner who is a PhD botanist. So she's a nutritionist, but obviously tons of training and DNA and cells. She teaches at post-secondary levels in those capacities. And about yeah, six years ago now, she said to me, Amanda Brenda, one of these you know companies that we use some of their supplements with has just brought out this really cool new program that addresses DNA and looks at how that we can individualize our approach and our nutrition parts of our practice by looking at people's responses to carbs and responses to protein and whatever. And, you know, I got to say, her, her name is Alicia, and when Alicia talks to me about anything to do with science and DNA, I listen. So she said, we need to start doing this. So it was very specialized training that she and I were going to, full day-long trainings, in person and then with COVID, it all became obviously online and that kind of thing. And every single training I took, first off, I was slogging through, you know, my, my, I'm trying to remember my university biology. And then I was like, oh my goodness, this is another missing piece that I feel like because I've been doing body typing, I've been doing metabolic typing, but this was like that on steroids when you could actually explain what you mean by body typing and, and then how the DNA fits into that. And by the way, when we talk DNA, we're talking about that DNA data that you get when you go on those sites, the 23andMe and... Uh, and Ancestry, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's the it's the raw DNA data that you can download from those commercial sites, absolutely. So but by typing metabolic typing, which I had used for like 20 years in my practice, like I didn't invent it. That is long history of tradition. So things like traditional Chinese medicine, for example, uh, using like 
tongue symptomatology and pulse and different things, they would prescribe these biochemically unique courses of action for their patients. So you could have four or five, you know, patients come in presenting the same symptoms, but they would leave with different diets and different herbal remedies. And likewise with Ayurvedic medicine, we're looking at, you know, a dosha or your metabolic type before you would address the disease. So this is long, long, thousands and thousands of years standing. And I think most of the more recent research came about because of the frustration of doctors and different healthcare practitioners going like, oh my goodness, like, I, I, I gave this person this medication that it worked great and they responded really well. Someone comes in with the same, you know, presentation. I give them the same diet recommendations or I do whatever and it, it didn't do anything, you know. So, so that's where this body typing and there became some surveys and I came about it a roundabout. We've been eating super healthy in our family after my days with the, you know, master herbalist. We had five kids by this point and I decided Sometimes you just got to really watch what you decide, okay? I decided, you know, what we're doing is working so well. Maybe we should become vegetarian. And, you know, that would be the next, you know, higher level of wellness. You know, I did some research and it looked like that was a good idea. So put everybody in our family in it for about a year and ignored the fact that while I did reasonably okay on it, that my husband and some of our children were, were not doing well. They were starting to be more procrastinating. They were like getting lazier in their motivation. They were more irritable. They were starving all the time. Like my husband would eat his lunch, like driving on the way to work in the morning, you know, and it was like, I was seeing these things, but blinders on. And that's because they had a different body type, metabolic body type than you did. Exactly, exactly. So I came across some work by Anne Louise Gittleman. She's an American nutritionist, really great woman, really interesting book called Your Body Knows Best. And she had a survey in there. So I did it. And I thought, oh, I actually do reasonably well in a vegetarian diet. I had my husband do it. And I've administered a similar test to this, the one that I use in my practice hundreds and hundreds of times in the last 20 years. I've never seen a higher score for someone that has a higher need for protein, particularly animal protein. He handed me his test results and I said, oh babe, like we need to go buy you a cow like right now. And he's just like, hallelujah. I mean, <laughs> and he ate the whole cow right then. Almost. And, and literally in, without exaggeration, in six to eight weeks, he dropped 25 pounds because a healthy, super healthy vegetarian diet, the guy just kept gaining weight. Okay. Mental clarity came back, sharpness, like he was, he's a, he's a college university athlete and he had gotten really kind of sedentary and all of a sudden he's back doing all this stuff. His irritation levels have dropped. And I, right before my eyes, I saw the value of a non one size diet, you know? Right. So, so the, these different types, these metabolic types, can you, can you tell us what they are? And also, did you, so you've just said there's a history of these types, but your types that you're going to describe now, are these unique to your work or is this, where does, where do they come from? These are classic ones. These are pretty classic, no matter if you search online for a free metabolic test or there's been a lot of work done by William Walcott, William Walcott and Trish Fahey in their book, Metabolic Typing. So you can find variations of this. I really like the ones that I use, but these types are very similar. So protein body type or a P for parasympathetic dominant is typically a fast burner of fuel. So these are the bodies that often will have, and when you look at genetics, it's 
bears it out. They will often have a digestive system that functions a little bit faster. You know, they've got enzymes that break things down quicker. So when you look at fuel that is what I call toothpick fuel, that was the name of my first book, the toothpick reference there, carbohydrates, refined grains and sugars, fruits, even some of the vegetables, those are broken down quite rapidly. So if you're a protein body type, you're burning that fat quite quickly, or sorry, that food quite quickly, which means a nice spike in blood sugar, often too rapidly, but then you're going to get the drop once the pancreas starts secreting insulin again. So, you know. Which is why your husband was eating his lunch oh, right after yeah. breakfast. Totally, yeah. totally. And then what happens, though, is because that body type is often very efficient at fat storage, there I like to think of them like the kind of Neanderthal body type, okay? So, you know, they're more like the hunter-gatherer where they would have more animal protein or fish. Now, obviously, they're going to have nuts and roots and tubers and that as well, but they really are like our old-school eaters. So, yeah, very efficient fat stores, which is great in, you know, millions of years ago when you didn't have ready food supply. It's not a good trait to have right now when you can have 24-hour food delivery service to your door. You don't need to store food. And we have so much ultra-processed food in front of us. The carbohydrate body types are typically the slower burner fuel. That's me. and go long periods of time without having to remind ourselves to eat, that kind of thing. We're not very efficient fat stores. And I think we're going to get in a minute about how I think this liberates people and brings, you know, a sense of freedom. But if you've got a sibling that is like this, you know, we just we don't store fat a lot. And so it's not that we're super disciplined or we, you know, we just, you know, we eat better. Like we, we, we burn it more efficiently. We're not hungry as faster. We don't store that. We have different genetic mechanisms for that. And we're typically more left brain, more uh, sympathetic dominant. So yes, we are more disciplined, but that's not the only reason why we tend to be leaner. All right. And these are the folks that could do well on a plant-based food plan. Yes, yeah. Like I, I eat meat because I live with a household of meat eaters. And and occasionally, when you when you know your body type and you pay attention to what's going, I can tell sometimes. I just need to ground a bit. I need to eat something a little more dense and than a piece of chicken or a little bit of fish or whatever. But yeah, I would be perfectly happy fueling on lentils and you know those kind of uh, things as as my main thing. And then you've got the balance type, which is in between that. And again, depending on their genetics, they'll often lean a little more to one or the other. And their second highest number is usually what I start working with with them, because that will be more like the the most reasonable place to start, for example. Okay. Okay, great. So can I jump in here and ask you, how does food addiction fit into this? So now we can understand why it is that a keto person might thrive, but could not thrive on a vegan plant and vice versa. That, that explains that because it's, it's very confusing. But what about food addiction? Where does that fit into this? So let's go back to even setting genetics aside as far as knowing your DNA. Yes, we're going to get to that. We're going to get yeah. to that. But if you actually understand your body type and you understand that you you need lots of fuel, you need dense fuel. Like if you think about your digestive system as being a, a campfire, you cannot all day be feeding it kindling, you know, starting with toast and cereal at breakfast and having a sandwich, a vegetarian sandwich at lunch and having a plate of pasta at supper and snacking on granola bars and fruit. Those are toothpick fuel. So 
they, you know, you're going to have this cycle of gravitating to more food because your blood sugar levels are going to drop regularly throughout the day. Are you talking about the protein type now? Yes. If you're a protein body type, I mean, for all, for all of us, we can get into that cycle and it can be problematic, but it's really problematic for the protein body type. So where food addictions come in, I think as a first line of response is simply your body is survival mechanism. You know, it's, it's concerned that you're actually starving or something. We, we need to get more fuel into you. Yeah, it's only kindling that you're getting. Like they said, the standard American diet is essentially kindling. Exactly. And so when we stand in front of the pantry, though, because now we're having, you know, you know, we have hunger signals. It's the only way our body can tell us to get the blood sugar levels back up again. And we can have eaten sufficient caloric intake. It, it doesn't matter. Your blood sugar levels are plunging. There are There is no other way to get it back up again. So we're in the pantry. No one's in front of the fridge looking for broccoli. We're in the pantry looking for fast action. So again, sugar, refined grains are the fastest way to bring that back up again. When you go to, when you deliver or when you go and donate blood, you know, they give you cookies and juice. They, they need to get that up again. So the addiction can start being fueled simply by nature of the, the type of diet that we're eating. How it expands beyond that is that we, we have sets of genes. So for example, dopamine cycling, okay, where we are producing dopamine, we're binding to receptors, we are breaking that down then through what we'll talk about more in the part two, but through a T gene, we break that down. So we have this cycle going on, a very natural, very healthy cycle. But depending if we have gene vulnerabilities in there, we can also be more prone to addiction. So if we're not making enough dopamine, which is, you know, the hormone that's going to have you feel good and have you feel motivated and have you feel a sense of pleasure, then again, we we have to have that. It's not like it's a non-negotiable kind of hormone. So we will find other ways of getting that through substances. And there are many culturally acceptance substances. You don't have to be doing cocaine or, you know, copious amounts of alcohol or heroin. You you can be just living on Twinkies and hosted ding dongs. But I just want to go back to the, the, the types. Would it be fair to say that, you know, some of us are more prone to addiction than others, that that protein type in our society today, which is essentially kindling, would be more likely to become food addicted more quickly. And the, I mean, if you're, you're nodding to this, that if I just, if I can just jump ahead. Is that why when we have a food addiction plan that, that is a success, it's often very keto based. I mean, it, like very few carbohydrates because that that's where the protein type thrives. Anyway. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And, and there's like, there's other genes we'll look at when we look at, you know, this further, but that is, you are absolutely nailing it on a head, on the head. And you also will see then, not always, but often the clients that come to me looking for some support with weight release, there are almost always a protein body type or a balanced body type heavily leaning towards that. And they've just been fed the wrong fuel mix yeah. for their whole life. Yeah. So I'm sorry, I have to interrupt. So is this why we'll see some vegan spokespeople who do really well, even food addiction wise, it's because they fit into the slow burning type, the carbohydrate type of body type. So we're really not speaking the same language in terms of genetics. You're right. That was like a huge eye opening for me. Like that, that scenario. And I, and I think it's divinely oriented because again, being so 
you know, carb-based myself and strongly wired with the whole left brain sympathetic dominant thinking, I can analyze everything to death and, and, and judge everybody else as to why they aren't doing so well. And it was like in front of my face. And not only was my husband not doing, not doing well, the school called us in because one of our children, they were intimating with, you know, looking like ADHD and would, you know, potentially need to be going on some medication. And I went home from that meeting and I thought, what the heck? The only thing we've done is we have made this switch. And so it's not just protein. It's actually fat as well. That body type often needs, which is kind of like the ultimate log fuel. You know, protein is like big branches and then, you know, fat is just like dump a log on that fire. So, and, and fat does so much around satiety and around, you know, helping be broken down and, you know, helping with hormone production and calming and everything. So I had taken them off animal fats and we weren't eating much vegetable fats because I don't like a lot of them. So, you know, I did a double whammy on them. So yes, protein body types end up uh, often with food addictions because of the insufficiency of the protein and the fat intake. And you can have very, and I'm waving my hands, you, you know, the, the, your viewers won't be able, or your listeners won't be able to see this, but like me, very dogmatic, judgmental, used to be people saying, why can't you just get it together? Like, this is better for you. This way of eating is better. Look how well I do on it. And I'm like, it's because you are not them. You yeah, do, not you're not. Yeah. 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 Okay. Wow. That this is I find I find this really fascinating. Each time I talk to you, I'm so fascinated. So okay. So let's get now to the DNA. How does the DNA data that we can get online fit into this body type discussion, metabolic body type? Okay. So let's go back 20 years actually this month, Vera, which is just so cool. So the Human Genome Project kind of finished up and wrapped in April of 2003. And so scientists at that point covered about 92% of the total genome sequencing. So for the, the first time ever, like, you know, you didn't have this in your medical training. I didn't get this in my social work training. Like, this was like nowhere to be found. So it was like we had this better understanding of genetics and we were growing in our understanding of kind of the interplay between different types of gene variations and how that impacts our responses to food and to stress and environmental toxins. But initially, that didn't really mean anything to the average person. I mean, maybe you saw it on the cover of Time magazine or whatever. You're like, so what? And that's because, you know, anybody that was getting their genetics kind of, you know, done at that time would pay thousands and thousands of dollars through yeah, some... It was to find out if you had the breast cancer gene or something exactly. like that. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And so the kind of more affordable off-the-shelf DNA testing that we have now wasn't even available until probably about 10 years ago. And that's when, you know, we were able to start, I don't mean me personally, but, you know, in general, we were able to start putting together and cross-referencing the science that was being discovered, you know, in labs with the way that individuals responded to different macronutrients, so protein, fats, and carbs. Like, how did they respond to stress? What were potential nutritional deficiencies that they might have? How might they detox the endogenous toxins coming from their own natural, you know, byproducts of metabolism stuff and the natural ones that they were taking in from the air? How did they process those? So that's where it started all coming together where we could actually be looking at that. So then this program that I'm trained in came about about 10 years ago. And what this program 
Because initially, like, for example, even the 23andMe and Ancestry, they did a lot of Ancestry stuff. You could find out, you know, what country you were from and your, your genetics. And if you, or, if you had it, Neanderthal yeah. genetics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a little bit. I'm, I'm sure that a lot of us have a little bit, that, which 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 would then suggest that I am the protein type. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, but what started happening is a few other programs that I think we can use this, you know, genomic genetic data and see if we can translate this into practical lifestyle applications that would be, be rooted in science and medical research, but actually be able to give everyday people something that they could kind of tag on. So that yeah, started coming up. Yeah, and more, I than just, more than just your, you know, aunts and uncles that you didn't know you had, we can actually have actual application of this in our life, our daily life. Exactly. And so when I, I tried a few of those, and the data seemed reasonable. It kind of lined up with what I knew, like about body typing and that. But then when Alicia mentioned to me, oh, no, no, we need to do this training. And I'm really glad I went with this particular program because they emphasize what they call the three R's. So they really, it's very, it's conservative. They want their data to be very well researched on the gene variations and SNPs. They want to make sure there's enough sufficient research across a number of, you know, trials and studies. So that made me feel good. I don't want to just know somebody was doing this on our kitchen table, okay? It had to be relevant because there are a lot of SNPs. There are a lot of gene variations. And most of them, frankly, are not going to make a difference in you or my life. Like, they're just not, okay? And then their third R was that they really felt that if they were going to put this out for healthcare practitioners to use in their practices, it needed to be responsive to intervention. Like it's, I, I don't find it helpful to know that I have a SNP, a gene variation, that I can do nothing about. Like knowing that I have a particular SNP that all I had to do was practice mindfulness, you know, every week or shift my diet a little bit or change the type of exercise I was doing and I could have significant impact in my wellness. Now that, that I want to do and that I want to help my clients do. And your program was able to isolate some of those those key points so that you could then actually make them practical. Do you want to elaborate a little bit more on an example of that, or sure? I just I think what it, it does is is I find in my practice when people have done this, and you can attest to this, you know, if you want, or save it till our next session. But the first thing I noticed for people is like it's almost like it's a release of shame. Like, if they have struggled with addiction or if they've struggled with, you know, and I, I'm not big into weight management, I, or sorry, weight loss. Like, I, I the other thing that happens with genetics is you start realizing, oh, my goodness, like, I'm shorter and rounder. And that's, there's a reason for that. I am taller and leaner. And all these bodies are just different. So there's a much of a better recognition of kind of body acceptance and body neutrality. So that, that's really great. Because it's in a genetic back. Yeah. 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 So there's a listing off of, oh, I need to look like this person on the magazine cover or I need to do whatever. So there can be a lifting of shame, feeling like you know, you've fallen into addictive patterns or you haven't been able to you know, get to the ideal BMI. So they get to, and and I, I feel like for people, there's like hope starts happening. Light bulbs start going on. And they're like, oh, my goodness, like I'm much more motivated to make changes if I think that this would be relevant to my DNA. So I like that it was said in common sense 
there was hope inspired and a real release of some of the negative emotions that people have been carrying. Okay. So one of the things that I often say to people without really knowing the science behind it is it must be that you're more carb sensitive than another person. In other words, you're going to become more triggered by carbs and gain more weight. So now in the language that we're discussing, that's the protein body type probably, right? Other genetic aspects. Is there anything else that just, I, I know you're going to be talking a great deal more about this in part two, but just in the realm of weight for people, let's say, who just cannot lose weight, even when they're eating everything right, what could a genetic explanation be that you might find in this platform that you use? Sure. So the platform covers like lots of things, but five or six that I really hone in on. And almost all of them can have an impact on weight. And I think this is, again, some of the biggest light bulbs that have gone on for me in the last 20 years of body typing and then now the, the genetic DNA is that there are so many things that influence the body size that we end up settling. And so the, the program looks metabolism. So, you know, how often should you eat for your DNA? Like, are you a good candidate for intermittent fasting? How does the way that you eat affect your body fat percentage? And this might said? be why some people can't do well on intermittent fasting and others thrive. Bingo, bingo. Which is, again, can, you know, people try all this stuff and it's just like their buddy is doing great and they just feel horrible on it. So we look at what controls your metabolism, what controls food cravings, what actually, like there are genes that are, if you have the sensitivity to SNP for it, they will literally trigger cravings and hunger if you do not fuel a certain way. So we look at that. We look at the, besides the metabolism, we look at dietary things. So how do you handle, like you said, carbohydrates? Are you carb sensitive? How do you respond to fats? And I particularly, you know, saturated fat, you know, it gets really vilified in the press and we actually need saturated fat for lots of different, you know, processes that go on in our body. And I say that on one hand, and there are people who absolutely cannot do very much saturated fat. I'm I'm one of them. You know, I need to keep mine under 22 grams a day. My husband does super well on a ketogenic approach. I have some kids that do really well on that. If I try to even for one week, Vera, just to go with them, like I, I feel horrible. And I, I gained five pounds in a week of trying to do a ketogenic diet to support them. So you get this understanding and you can get some guidance on, you know, whether again, you should do ketogenic or whether you should do paleo or whether you should be more vegetarian. We look at exercise because believe it or not, some of my clients, exercise doesn't make, makes a very little difference on their weight. And so I just tell them, you know, let's do it for all the other reasons. It helps you feel good. Don't mean wise. It does this, but do not expect this to make a big difference. It's not going to be the primary thing that's going to impact your weight. I have other clients where like, I'll say, you, this is a really good tool to include. Like, you're going to get a lot of bang for your buck with this. So we can actually look at that, okay? And then a big part that, you know, I, I love talking about and that we'll talk about again more, but the neurotransmitters and hormones. So with weight, the production and transportation and binding and receptor density of things like dopamine and serotonin and cortisol and adrenaline, noradrenaline, their impact on overall wellness for sure but also your ability to reach a comfortable for you size is massive. So they just contribute so much to food cravings and or addictive tendencies. And I know you have understanding of that, you know? So yeah, so that would be the other aspect. The one other aspect I look at is around sleep. Are there interactions with sleep that we can look at 
through the genes. And again, often that would be a serotonin or calming thing. And we look at detoxification because if you are not clearing in what's called phase one and phase two detoxification, if you're not clearing the breakdown of the byproducts that happen in those phases, those are kind of like life and death matters. And I, I tell people on a list of, you know, 15 most important things to do in a day, most of the times for our body, shedding excess fat is not one of them. It's like keeping organs functioning well, making sure the pH levels of my blood are in this very narrow range, all of this stuff. And if you have stress going on, then it's going to be more focused on those, you know, key factors because it's, it's trying to keep you alive. So if we can do it, deal with these broader things, then there's more of a chance that the weight will naturally just settle and come off and you will be where you need to be without having to make a ton of effort specifically at weight loss. Okay, great. Those are just a few things that you can do. So, and this is based on this program that, that you have become very skilled in using. How accurate are these programs? How accurate are these DNA things that we pick up? Like, how do we know this isn't just another complementary odd thing? Like, yeah, I hear you. I hear you. I think what I am finding is that if you can use ones like I mentioned that are conservative, that like the, the one, the pure genomics program that I use, uh, you, you'll be happy to hear it's designed by MDs and NDs and wellness practitioners like you and scientists. And they literally, I can click on any one of these SNPs that I look at in my back office and I pull up the all the PubMed studies and everything that backs this. And so I, I like that it is science-based. I also like that, like I said, that I, I want to use a program that gives me tools that are easily able to implement. And then I've used this now with you know, over 100 clients in the last four or five years. And it is, I see it borne out in them. Like it's like they make these changes and tack that on top of the 20 years of hundreds of clients that were just doing the body typing shifts. And I'm like, there is something definitely to this. I think you want to, I think it's helpful to get a skilled practitioner. I, I think it's helpful to have somebody help guide you with this, but I think they are definitely getting more clear in what they can help with. And I also want them then set in common sense. I teach my clients how to pay attention to their body to shift, okay, is, is it helping? Can you notice, are these changes happening? If it's not, let's tweak it again. It's not a magic bullet. It, it needs to be set in a framework of common sense and what's going on in your life and everything else. But as a helpful tool for that, as a, as a partner tool, absolutely. Yeah, okay. So if somebody came to you, what you would be doing is taking the understanding of body type and then adding embellishing with that that's the word i was trying to get that this whole dna understanding and i think you called your program the nourish your dna review or something like that and the three of us have done that and we'll be we'll be doing part two to actually go through that so that our listeners can know what that actually looks like and what it's involved but can you tell the listeners now what they can anticipate should they want to do it or they want to listen sure sure so I'll, I'll give you the overview here, and then if you have time, you can ask me to explain a little bit more about the alleles and SNPs and that. But in, in summary, what you get first is a lot of compassion. Like I said, it, it, this health journey is challenging, it's multifaceted, and it is likely already one that has, you know, heaped on you, you know, personally or from society, confusion and remorse and shame. So you're going to get lots of compassion, someone who's going to be present with you on this journey 
And I think a recognition that you have done the best that you could do with the tools and resources that you had. So there's that there, okay? And then next is kind of education, just all this ongoing, I just finished another training last week, you know, an ongoing training paired with the science-informed tools that really show, you know, what are the best practices in terms of things like supportive sleep. Because if, say, you were dealing with food addiction and you are fatigued, well, then your willpower is going to be lower. We're going to gravitate more towards trigger food. So I want to make sure that I'm giving you, yes, the DNA that says these genes are vulnerable. Then I want you to consider these practices. They're the ones that my other reading, my other, you know, looking at things has said, this type of gratitude practice is going to bring the most motivation to move forward. This breath work is going to switch you quickest from parasympathetic mode to sympathetic mode. You know, so this diet plan is going to best reduce the cravings for you. So we're really trying to get them to have a, a framework that will guide them for the rest of their life. Because a lot of times, like I have very intelligent, well-informed clients. Like I, I love my clients. And in some areas, they might be more informed or more educated than I am in a certain area. But I want to really address with these missing pieces of genetic information around stress management and the dopamine cycle, serotonin production. I want to address as quick as we can those things because then what happens is you start having motivation. You start having a sense of agency. You start feeling like you're in control of things. And that just changes it game-wise as to how you're able to put effort into the changes that I'm recommending. So the the key, I think, with the program is to realize that if you haven't sorted out some of the reasons behind your behaviors, whether they're genetic or whether they are spiritual or whether they are emotional, then this is going to bring those together. You might have done some work already with like higher power type of things, recognition that you need support and help. You may have done some cognitive behavioral therapy. You may have done you know, some internal family system therapy. Those, like, I love all of that work. And if you haven't done the biological component to the genetics, addiction can continue to be an ongoing challenge. It's frustrating, okay? So, yeah, so I think this is kind of like a, like you said, what's the term you said? Embellishment, I used the less nice term. I said, like, body, body work on steroids. But it really is, like, where you're going, like, oh, my goodness. And yeah, then you do a lot of steroids. response. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. So that's the Nourish Your DNA plan. And folks, you'll see that in action in part two. But so I think we have a bit of time if you want to elaborate a little bit more on uh, the alleles and the SNPs and uh, genes, just whatever you whatever you want to tell us a little bit about so that we, we know what you're up about. No, that, that makes sense. So we've discussed finding what works for you can often go like this kind of endless trial and error. But this Nourish Your DNA review that I do. So there's two ways I work with DNA with clients. One is the Nourish DNA review, which we do with you and Vera, Vera, you and Clarissa and Molly. And then it also can be attached to a longer 12-week program where you get ongoing work. But let's just talk about the one-hour one that you guys did. So you get your DNA done through 23 and near Ancestry. If you already have that done, that's great. If you don't and you're going to go get it, recognize that I can get the most data from 23andMe's Health and Ancestry Kit. So that's just, if you haven't bought one yet, that's, and I don't have any say in either of those companies, no shares, unfortunately, will kick back, okay? But that's just where I can get the most data. And then once you get it, and that could take, you know, six weeks or whatever, 
then you go into your back office in 23andMe or Ancestry, you download your raw DNA and you upload it to, to my program. And what then we do is we look, like I said, we look at metabolism, dietary, detox, all of that. And we look at it. I'm going to give you a little bit of little background for a couple of minutes on the, the mechanics of it and the terminology that we're going to use. So let's start, let's start with DNA. Okay, DNA. Okay, so passed down from your biological parents, a long chain of molecules that are contained in each cell. And this gives all the information needed for your cells to differentiate and reproduce and produce. Each strand of DNA that you inherit, the one from your mom, one from your dad, is made up of a lot of genes. And genes are the basic units of hereditary, uh, so heredity. So that's the portion of the DNA that codes for specific molecules, usually a protein. And when you look at those codes on your genes, you can see, or I'll be able to see with you, you might not recognize it, but I can help you see that, whether or not you easily produce these individual important building blocks, okay? Now, alleles are the DNA coding. It's like DNA alphabet. This just only has four letters, A, G, C, and T. And so the cell reads these as instructions. And if the gene contains a SNP, which I'll tell you about in a minute, then that variation of the normal code means the code can be hard to read. It's like a little blip or a glitch in the, the message, okay? So SNPs are what we talk a lot about in the dietary needs assessment review, or sort of the DNA review, and their gene variation, that stands for single nucleotide polymorphisms, and they occur normally in our DNA. So it's not like, oh my goodness, I have a SNP, okay? We, we have lots of SNPs. They, they make you who you are, your hair color, your eye color, that kind of thing. They're variations within a single DNA building block. What happens with them, though, is that, well, a lot of them, you know, aren't a big deal, they don't play out, at least as far as we know yet. Some of them can be beneficial, but many of the ones that we know about mean that we might not be producing something and they make us vulnerable to something. And they matter because when you have the normal, it's called normal or ancestral allele, those are most common and they're usually the one that's not a challenge, okay? There's some exceptions. If you have the risk or variant allele, that's usually least common. That one is more likely to foster some increased health challenges. And that's what we talked about before when we said someone could have carb response genes that made them very vulnerable, you know, and that so that they the carb was utilized very quickly and, and became converted to body fat very quickly, for example. And then maybe they have a stress response gene that they're vulnerable in the dopamine or the serotonin one. Layer that over top of the carb one, and you have a double whammy. So that's where we start looking at the SNPs that are relevant to you in and those these are areas. All the, these are all the little vulnerabilities that you have that you're actually defining through the DNA. Exactly, exactly. And they make you who you are. And, and again, it's not like, like I've had clients come in and sit down in my you know, office pre-COVID days when you could actually have someone in your office, and they would be like, oh, man, I have such you know horrible DNA. And I'm like, no, no, you, you, like your DNA got you here. It's like survival of the fittest. This is really, really good. It might not work so well in today's environment with all the stress and with all the carbs and with all, and living north of the, hem the northern hemisphere like we do, we don't get a lot of sun, you know, yeah. and our vitamin D. You just have to adapt our environment yeah. to your type. And exactly. that's, that's where recovery is. That's, that's what you essentially will teach us what to do, what I need to do differently than somebody else. Exactly, exactly. And hopefully, again, in a hopeful framework of 
like huge amounts of aha moments and pennies dropping and going, well, that would be why I do this, or that would be why I'm up, you know, after the, the dinner table 30 minutes later rummaging around in the fridge or the pantry. Oh, and it just, it just make, makes people feel so much better about themselves because it's, it's a natural part of who they are and they can, and they can mitigate it because the other thing is that genes, the genes do not, like, how can I say this? Gene expression doesn't, is not a given. Like we have tremendous power to mitigate That's the epigenetics. Myths. Yes, yeah. yes. So our environment, what we eat, how much sleep we get, how we handle our stress, much water we get, all these things, you know, like nurture almost always trumps nature. We have a massive potential to like actually cause most of those genes, many of the genes, to not ever express that way. And I know you've asked me, like, you know, so can you ever not be as addicted or can you ever, you know, can some of these things change? Absolutely. Like, I was massively addicted to sugar. I am not. I can now be a partial celebratory user. Chocolate can sit in my cupboard for months and not get eaten. And that's not, that was not my life. Okay. So not for everyone, but for some people, those changes can happen in that way as well. But don't forget for folks listening, you're a carbohydrate type. (laughs) That is a really good point. You might be able to get away with it. (laughs) That's Um, a really good point. And I would never, someone who has struggled with addiction, who was abstinent, we would never have them just trial and error things. That would, that would be silly. We don't have time to get into it, but I do know that you talk about supplements as well. You don't just talk about sleep and and diet and exercise, but also supplements, but we'll talk, you'll give examples of that in part, in a part two. I I think we better close up. There's anything else that we didn't say that you really want to say in part one before we close up. I think just that it is a very new, it's a new field. It's very exciting. We're, we're pioneers. We're, we're learning new things. And in many ways, my clients are guinea pigs with me because every new training I take, I'm like, oh, by the way, now we can add this piece of the puzzle. So it's very exciting, but it is also very hope producing, especially if you have struggled with certain things for a long period of time. So I think that's why I love that it's a component of my practice, both my short one-off reviews like this and my longer programs. It's just helping people figure out themselves and better take care of themselves. You know, are you going to tell us more about your other program in part two, or can you quickly say I, something I'll, now? I'll quickly talk about it here. It's, a, it's called Soul Bloom. It's the art and science of body-mind-spirit transformation, and it's a 12-week program weekly uh, group meetings, a uh, closed Facebook group, an online membership platform with videos and, and homework. We walk through a dietary cleanse. We look at a lot of the material that people like Gabor Mate cover around trauma and self-management, Bezel van der Kolk's work on, you know, your body keeps the scores. We look at a lot of different aspects of diet, emotion, spirituality, and I'm going to do start doing that with a DNA overview as well, where people will get extra group sessions that literally break down their DNA and how does that apply to what we're looking at in the course as a whole. So I'm excited about adding that to my repertoire in this next new year. Or in this oh, year. Great. Well, actually, that kind of leads to our, our sort of closing questions, which is what's next for you. I guess that's what's next for you. It is very much so. I, 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 I see this as being so life-giving and so helpful that it just needs to get woven through 
everything that I do as much as people are willing to do it. And for sure, and people that some people prefer not to get their DNA done, we can do a lot of work simply with the body type, which I've used for 20 years. So people who aren't comfortable with DNA, don't worry. So got you covered with looking at that body type survey that I do, and we've got some good information out of that as well. Great. Well, if you're at all curious about what, what Brenda does do with the body type and the DNA, that's all about part, part two of the next time we visit with you. And that'll be using us as the guinea pigs. And it's, I, you know, we've done it already. It's fascinating stuff. Okay. So as a final question, we ask everybody at the close of our interviews, if you could tell a younger version of yourself about addiction or maybe about DNA, would, uh, anything that we've talked about here, what would it be? I'll leave it to you to decide what you want to share. Thanks, Vera. I mentioned to you that when you sent me the signature question, I had a bit of a gut punch, and it was like I was surprised how emotional I was. And it has come, I know it came from my family of, of origin, having a lot of us deal with different types of addictions, having lost a sibling to addiction. So there's a lot of, of things that got kicked in there. But I think what I would tell my younger self and my younger siblings, okay, about DNA and food addiction or other addictions, is that I would say, I sit down with all of us and I say, okay, we don't know a lot right now about how challenging family or community events and experiences play out in addiction. We don't yet understand that trauma is as, you know, Gabor Matei says, not what happens to you, but what happens inside you as a result of what happened to you. I say we don't know a lot about genetics right now. And you might hear some things in the future, like you have predisposition to this ailment or you don't make vitamin D very well, you're going to be prone to addiction. I say to my younger self, don't worry. Knowledge is power. Nurture trumps nature almost every time. And I would quote Dr. Will Cole, whose book I'm just reading right now on gut health, where he said, all of us are made up of the basically the components of stardust. You know, we are literally stardust personified. So hang in there. We can do this. Wow. What a great way to end. Thank you. Wow, Brenda. You're very thank you so much. That, and, you know, you're, you're, the faster part of you is coming out. That's great. Thank you so much. I love that. Thank you <laughs> so much. for your time. I and, love and talking we'll, with you. We'll see you shortly. Okay, take care. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.